classes in session. Welcome back to Miskatonic University's offering of graphical literature and society and history as a publicly available podcast. I am your ever stalking Professor Hamby here with the ever, I don't know, what are you in an ever state of today, Rowan? Tired. You're an ever tired Rowan. My TA Rowan. TAs are usually tired. We're going to try to make today's lecture a quick one, Mm -hmm. because we're going to cover the three stories and fables and reflections that aren't part of Distant Mirrors. The naming gets confusing. When they collected Distant Mirrors and these three standalones, they put them in a collection called Fables and Recollections. But these three are distinct from Distant Mirrors. Distant Mirrors, we've talked about three of already, uh, Thermidor, uh, Augustus, and Three Septembers in a January, which, all of which dealt with a king of some kind. Emperor Norden of the United States, the Emperor August, August of uh, the Roman Empire, and essentially the would-be Emperor Rose-Pierre of the French Revolution and the New French Republic, and how dreams guided all of them and their decisions. And in a sense, the loss of each of their kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And that theme will continue into the last distant mirrors. But I'm going to do that as a standalone episode that we may just put out as a little quick extra. Mm-hmm. Because in between, we, the three that we're going to do today, which are not part of distant mirrors, we have the brief live storyline, which many people consider the best Sandman storyline. And I think is one of the least interesting ones. Mm. I seem to have contrary opinions a lot. Shocking, I know. So let's jump into these three. And there are some themes that interconnect them. But I'm just going to talk to the plot of the first one. And we'll discuss theme as we go. Especially towards the end. Now, we see the Neil Gaiman cover on the left. What do you think? Interesting. Does it say anything to you? When you look at that cover, does it make you think, I have an idea of what this content might involve. Nope. It kind of looks like a mix of all the other covers, like theming-wise. Well, Dave McKean provided some consistent sort of approaches. Well, the wolf art piece is going to be relevant. Mm. So we open with an older guy sitting around with a young teenage girl, and he says... Long, long ago, before the family left the old country, and what a palaver that was, my child, there was a young man of our people. Grandpa, I don't want to hear her story. I want to watch TV. You're nodding like you'd agree with her? Yeah. Oy vey. What a palaver. (laughs) Your parents, what kind of things are they teaching you? In the old country, you'd never hear any of the family taking that name in vain. Grandpa, it's just something they say over here. Everybody says it. That's in reaction to her saying, for Christ's sakes. So he starts in on the story. And after claiming for a moment to have forgotten it, but she's apologizing and trying to make good. As the story starts, well, I'm just going to read some of it to you. Not a lot, but enough to give you a vibe. There was a young man of our people. He was poor, but he was honest and he lived with his father in the forest. The forests today are poor things. These were the real forests of the old country, 
Many entered them who never came out again. Trees there were, old as trees can be, huge and grasping, with hearts black as sin. Strange trees that some said walked in the night. So, I mean, immediately we have a stage set for this land of force that's essentially from fairy tale. You know, ancient dangerous force. And this is in the lands that we would currently call Russia. Mm-hmm. However, these are an old people who probably didn't even know who the emperor was of Russia, or the czar, much less care, mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere. So this boy, who's called Vasily, is 16 and runs into a peddler woman in the woods. And notice how he's introduced. He's crouching in the undergrowth. She says, listen, I'm hungry, boy. And he leaves and comes back with a rabbit. She says, here, let me show you what I have in my bag. I have the emerald heart of Koshi, the deathless. He kept his life in this heart, but a woman stole it and he died. Here is a cloak of night. There's a country far in the north where the day never breaks. This cloak was woven from the silk of black worms who feed on the leaves of dark trees and lightless caverns beneath that land. This is the drum inescapable, the impusa crafted from the hide of a wevern in the wood of Yagstrazel. If you beat this drum, nothing can escape you. And he looks at this stuff. No, you went, oh, what? It's just a, it's just a trope that's three powerful items given by an old Right, guy. right. And there's far more in the bag. These are simply the things that are named. But we see in the bag that there's far more things, including a book, which will become important. Soon an older man appears and says, Give it back, son. He has nothing to pay for your baubles, old woman. We are poor forest folk and have nothing to spare. So they then part ways. But after a while, the boy comes back and says, My father says that the things you showed me are valueless, just trinkets. And she says, You startled me. I didn't hear you coming. That, that my ears are what they once were. Values in what people think, not in what's real. Values in dreams, boy. Now, this is the moment in which you may say this is the theme of the story. Because there is a tendency for the first time for somebody to make a, a sort of... Oh, God, what is the word I'm trying to think of here? To make a pronouncement about the nature of dreams in some way. Mm-hmm. God, I'm totally choking on the word I'm trying to think of. But anyway, there's a tendency in game and stories for the first time for somebody to make that kind of statement. For that to be an explicit declaration of theme. Mm-hmm. But he's but he's messing with people here, because it's not. Woo, 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 woo. That's the sound of that's that's the sound of dreams being mentioned. Ding ding ding. <laughs> wow, you're in a snarky mood tonight. <laughs> so she says, Well, I want to thank you for bringing me that rabbit. So here's a picture of the Duke's youngest daughter. I was once more beautiful than her. And she kind of does this little dance and jokes around and asks the boy to give her his pinky and says that she'll tell his fortune. But when she does that, she becomes terrified and runs off. She obviously did not see something that sat well with her. 
So as the story progresses, the boy decides ultimately to run away from his father and with the picture of the Duke's daughter to go find her. He seems entranced by this picture. See, you didn't need social media for parasocial relationships. Clearly. People were obsessive stalkers long before Instagram. Oh, we knew this. Yep. Along the way, he finds the old peddler woman who's died in the forest. He takes her bag with him. He has several small adventures. And then runs into, of course, the true unsung hero of Sandman. Is there a librarian? It's Lucy and the librarian, that's right. He's the true hero of Sandman. People don't recognize it, but it's true. And he's standing in the snow and says, I need something in your pack. Mm. He says, and Vasily says, I don't have anything of value. Mm -hmm. Value's in the mind of the buyer, not the peddler. This echoes the dream, yeah. value in the dream thing. And it turns out Lucian wants a book. A book has been stolen from the library of dreaming. But now that it is possessed by Vasily, he, must, he can't just steal it back. He has to get it with consent from Vasily. Consent, even important in dreams. There you go. And he continues several times. He brings a big bag of gold. He entreats him. And basically Vasily says, I, I want access to the Duke's daughter. You can't give me the Duke's daughter? You don't get the book. Along the way... Vasily runs into a deer. He chases the deer to eat it. But a young woman of the people capture it and snaps its neck and takes it back to her camp with her. And he joins her, heading to the camp, where the people accept him, but they're not very friendly. But they can tell he's of the people. I assume you figured out who the people are by now. How many people physically chase down a deer, jump on it, and snap its neck. Not many. There was a wolf picture attached to a person's head on the cover. Werewolves. Werewolves, thank you. <laughs> that took you way too long. I said I was tired earlier. That's the excuse you're going for. I see how it is around It's not here. excuses. This is apparently the land of lame-ass excuses now. <laughs> now, who else is at the camp? Well, I mean, if you show up at a camp of werewolves in a forest, of course Baba Yaga is going to be hanging out there. I was going to say, I just noticed a chicken house. But we're in Russia. What did I expect? If the story said in Russia, you got to throw in Baba Yaga. Right. I mean, so she's hanging out. And he says to her... I need to get to the Duke's palace. And she says, Hmm, have you ever ridden the night sky in a mortar? And she accepts as payment from him the Emerald Heart of Kashi the Deathless. Which she says, yes, it is the Emerald Heart of Kashi the Deathless. Now, we leave the story again. And there's a definite sort of Princess Bride vibe here. Mm -hmm. Where the old man and the grandchild, uh, in their dialogue, interrupt the story. And the granddaughter says, hold on. I thought you said it wasn't the Emerald Heart of Kashi the Deathless. You said the old peddler woman had lied. Maybe I was mistaken. Maybe Baba Yaga was easily fooled. 
Who knows? You shouldn't trust a storyteller, only trust the story. This is the real theme. Don't trust the storyteller, trust the story. And we will discuss this as we go through and wrap up the issue. So anyway, Vasily is now at the Duke's palace, and an employee of the Duke obviously doesn't like the look of him, and says, yeah, I'll take you to the Duke's daughter. It's way down here in this unlighted basement. Here, just go into this prison cell. I'll bring her along shortly. I don't know, sounds to, makes sense to me. Yeah, sounds totally legit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I, tr- I would trust some random stranger. So he isn't able to escape, and he ponders the possibility that he may starve to death, abandoned down here in this cell. When, of course, Lucian comes by again. I was going to say good. He's accepting the idea early. Wow. <laughs> now you want werewolves to starve to death in prison cells. No. Okay. You just don't care about the puppies. What if I am that? I'll bet you kick puppies, too. So, Lucian is back and says, I want the book. And Vasily says, well, you either give me what I want, or it'll just sit here and rot and you can take it after I'm dead. And Lucian says, well, then it becomes the property of the Dukes, and I don't want to trade with the Duke for it. So, I'm going to do something I'm not supposed to do, and I want you to be really quiet, because I'm going to take you through the dreaming, and just don't attract attention. Easier said than done, but okay. So, if you're trying to sneak through the dreaming, Mm -hmm. of course Morpheus is going to be standing right there. Because he's everywhere you don't want him to be. Yeah. Yep. So, he inquires from Lucian what's going on. Lucian explains. And Morpheus actually smiles. And he tells Vasily to give the book to Lucian. And for the first time, we get to see what the book is. The Merry Comedies of the Redemption of Dr. Faustus by Christopher Marlowe. The tragedy of Faust is one of the great works of English literature. And this is a book that Marlowe only wrote in his dreams. A sequel to it that's a comedy about the redemption of Faust. So Morpheus then opens the dreaming to the mortal world and takes Vasily to the sleeping bed of the Duke's daughter. Someone didn't hear earlier about the whole consent thing. So he walks up on the sleeping bed, looks at her. She doesn't look like she's dressed under the blankets. He wakes her up, looks at her, looks at the locket, gives it to her, and says, all right, I'm out. Maybe he did hear the consent thing earlier. So he goes with Morpheus, and Morpheus treats him to dinner in the Dreaming. And we see some interesting little things. Notice on the far left-hand side at the bottom, because this takes place before the events of Preludes and Nocturnes, we see Morpheus's helm, ruby, and pouch of sand all there as his raiments. And then Vasily returns to the mortal world, and for the first time we see him shifted into wolf form, where he dances with another wolf. Now we get to the part where Gaiman sort of plays with our expectations a little bit. Mm-hmm. The old man says that Vasily and the young woman are married. The other wolf there is the female wolf who caught the deer earlier and oh. took it from him. So that's why he just followed her blindly. Yep. 
The granddaughter says, and that's it? Yep, that's the story. It's kind of sexist. It's not sexist at all. It was the custom of the people. Or it was, before we came here. Doesn't mean it's not sexist. So, how did the Dream King's book get into the old peddler woman's sack in the first place? What, the Dream King tells me his secrets? It just was, that's all. Isn't any Dream King, Grandpa. Just another made-up person and another dumb story. And then she goes on to rant and say that the parable is clear. His intent in telling the story is very clear. He doesn't like the fact that she has a boyfriend who's not of the people. And this is about the unsuitability of the people with non-werewolves. And she says, Jesus, you're so transparent, Grandpa. Look, we don't live in the forest anymore. This is New Jersey. I can go out with whoever I want. Real no, New Jersey sometimes feels like the woods. Actually, most of New Jersey is beautiful. It's only the far northern end of New Jersey that's super urban near New York. Mm. People make fun of it because Jersey is known as the Garden State, but actually most of it is absolutely gorgeous. Mm. The grandfather says it was a true story. True? Give me a break. It's a story of the people. Don't you want to know where you come from? Who you are? Not really. The sexist and insular and the morals that the people are happy with the people. Big surprise. And the grandfather says, It wasn't about your boyfriend. It wasn't really even about the people. It was about what he saw when he looked at the sleeping woman. Why he turned his back on her. It was about dreams. And she tells him goodnight, and he says, I wish you could have known your grandmother. She was an amazing woman. She knew the value of things. But she never let me forget that she beat me to that deer. Oh, it was about him. He was Vasily. Mm -hmm. And it's a true story, all of it. Mm. It all happened like that. Maybe. I don't know, I wouldn't trust him. He's an unreliable narrator. <laughs> but you're supposed to trust the story, not the storyteller, he says. So, did these events happen like he said? Or was he modifying things to, in fact, communicate something about him not liking that she's dating somebody outside the people? <laughs> what do you think? I can see that. Do you think that's what he's doing? I don't know. Now, of course, here's a question. He says, trust the story, not the storyteller. Even if he's altering things to communicate something that he wants to about her not dating outside the people, if she sees wisdom in that, then does it matter that he made it up? Is the story worth trusting, even if the storyteller isn't? No, because that's how you get manipulated. I feel like. But isn't literature just manipulating people? Isn't art itself just a practice of crafting something to manipulate emotions? Yeah, but there's a difference between being honest about it and being de deceitful about it. The, I would argue that the act of creation of art is inherently deceitful. Or no, not deceitful, manipulative. Is manipulation and deceit the same thing? No. So how is this deceitful? 
if he's purposely telling her he's not changing anything and everything he's saying is true and that's how it happened, that's being deceitful. That's lying. That's a good point. But when what you, if... you open a book and read the pages, the author's already telling you know, if it's true. That's a fair point. Now, what if everything he's saying is true and he's saying it to communicate that point? Is that... Manipulation, I would argue it is. Mm -hmm. Is it deceit then? No. No. But if the person sees that in the story, because people can see things in stories the storyteller never intends, Mm -hmm. do you still trust the story, even if you don't like it? How do your feelings change about it when you're the one that created that point? I'm not really sure. It's a complicated question, isn't it? The, the hounds aren't happy with my analysis either. It's okay. It's all right. I know the juniors are kind of stringy. They usually have good cardio by the time they hit their third year, and they just don't have the meat on them that the hounds like. Mm-hmm. Cardio, cardio, cardio. They might get lucky one of these days, and they might wait, not get them, and wait for the juniors. They might get picky one of these days. Yep. Now, the grandfather said something that I think is interesting. He said what it was really about was what Vasily, he, at 16, saw in his dreams. What do you think his point was? I'm not really sure. I think that he was trying to say something about the boyfriend, Mm -hmm. but not what she thought. Mm. I think what he was trying to say was... What you imagine in your dreams that you want isn't what you necessarily want in real life. Mm. And so he saw this picture. He's this forest boy. He sees this beautiful woman, coiffed, elegant in a picture, and he's enchanted by it. Mm -hmm. But standing there in her presence where he could act on it, he just wants to return the picture to her and go back to the life he actually likes. You can become enchanted with dreams, but that doesn't mean that the fulfillment of those dreams would actually make you happy. Mm. And I do think that's an indirect commentary maybe on not just her boyfriend, but life in general. Mm. I mean, what do you think? I can see that. I think that's the most reasonable analysis. Now, the next two stories continue some element of unreliable narrators. I'm going to go through this next one pretty quickly, but we open to see this vague European figure lost in a sandstorm, and it says, Anno Domini, 1273. And it's called Soft Places. And as he wanders around, this figure hears, Marco, Marco, and then runs into this older fellow who says, oh, I fell asleep in my jail cell. I was dreaming of my companion in the cell, Marco Polo. And the young boy says, well, that's me. I'm Marco Polo. And we find out that they are in a soft place, a place where time bleeds together in the dreaming and touches the mortal world. Which we find out later there are very few of anymore. Nothing more complicated than time travel except dreams, apparently. Time-traveling dreams. Now, how much do you know about Marco Polo? I know he was a criminal and probably a liar. And I 
think he was Spanish. Italian. Why do you say he was a criminal? Wasn't he in jail? He was, but maybe not for the reasons you would think. Not everybody ends up in jail, strictly speaking, because they're a criminal. Sorry, he was a hostage, wasn't he? He was. Sorry, I misremembered. He left Italy when he was very young, went out with his dad and uncle, traveled across the world, traveled back, came back to find his hometown in Italy in the middle of a war with another town, because these were city-states. They were like their own nations. Yeah. And so he promptly bought a boat and decided to go to war <laughs> with no knowledge or experience of how to do this. Within hours, got himself captured, thrown into jail, and ransomed back to his family. And I think some people have speculated his stories were, were actually his and published by someone else. That, that gets to the figure here. His name is Rusticello. <laughs> Rusticello! He was a writer. And he wrote several extremely unsuccessful books. And then, after spending time with Marco Polo, decided to write up Marco Polo's adventures. And he signed them Marco Polo. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, oh, I just transcribed them. But I did it word for word. Um, dude, 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 Rosticello, dude, let's talk. Um, I found this copy of this book you did before you ever met Marco Polo. And, like, the first 20 pages are word for word what you put in this Marco Polo book. I don't think Marco Polo was reading your book to you. Oh, that is a nothing. You don't need to worry about that. <laughs> that was just a, a little embossing. It, it, it's about Kublai Khan's court, and you're presenting it as fact. Oh, you're just, you, you got the, your testicles all wound up over nothing. Well, he was Italian. He'd say stuff like that. Have you known Italians? Trust me, I'm not being rude. Mm -hmm. Italians are a different breed of people from Americans. Mm -hmm. An Italian, you can look at a car. Especially a sports car. Look at an Italian and go, so what do you think of that? And he'd be like, it is a nice ass. You, no, this is actually a quote from an Italian, by the way, in regards to a car. Mm -hmm. Who then went on to describe the design of the end of the car in terms of a, wom of a woman's G-string and the visual appeal of it peeking out of her pants. Gross, and I don't like Italians anymore. I'm just saying. Italians are different people. There are three things that really get the Italians going. Food, women, and sports cars. Maybe American men aren't so bad. <laughs> oh. So anyway, they run into a fellow. Do you recognize the fellow sitting in the chair? It's a different artist than from the last time you saw him. But it's Fiddler's Green. Oh. Who is hanging out in the soft place because he's trying to get away from the core of the dreaming because his lord is walking around with his new girlfriend saying sweet nothings this in within him because remember he's a locale uh -huh. and it's annoying the crap out of him so he came here to hang out and get away from it so honestly i don't blame him yeah the only thing i think that would be more annoying than morpheus being mopey is morpheus being happy yeah yeah, uh, unfortunately, probably. Along the way, we run into ghosts. We run into all kinds of figures, and they all split up. Now, here, the unreliable narrator is, ironically, nobody in the story itself, the unreliable narrator, is the narration of Marco Polo's stories after he returns to the waking world, Rusticello, mm -hmm. and maybe Marco himself. We don't know how much Marco made up. Certainly, some of 
the claims in his books about, for example, his political rank in Kublai Khan's court are just ludicrous and clearly made up. But we don't actually know what Marco told him. Right. We don't know if Rusticello made that up or Marco Polo made it up. And then at the end, we run into... Morpheus. But when Morpheus? I don't know. He always looks mopey and depressed. Right. This Morpheus is the Morpheus of the of Preludes and Nocturnes. Right after he escapes Roderick Burgess's cell, and remember when he re-arrives in the Dreaming, he's completely wiped out. That's because of this moment here. Marco Polo gives him a jug of water, which helps refresh him, and Morpheus uses the last of his strength to send Marco back to the waking world safely, which is why he has nothing left when he arrives on Cain and Abel's doorstep. You look like there's a thought forming, but it's maybe scared of itself. Tell me that baby dart died over this guy. Well, remember that was in the show, not in the comic. True. Yep. That was traumatizing part of the show. And presumably this is not necessarily canon in the TV show. True. Because the TV show is doing some different things. Uh-huh. Holy shit. Look, sometimes you just gotta face a big freaky bird. Dave McKean <laughs> is a unique artist. We're accepting that, right? Unique is one way to put it. Brilliant is another. Those two go together. <laughs> so now, we have Lyda Hall and Baby Daniel for a story called The Parliament of Rooks. She puts the baby down and is like, you'll be safe in your crib, you won't go anywhere. She has not even left the room before he's crawling out of that crib. Just like, screw this. And we get a sequence very reminiscent of Nemo and Dreamland. Little Nemo. Which, if you may remember, was one of the first successfully published comic strips back at the end of the 19th, early 20th century and was heavily collected. And was also somewhat parodied back when we saw Jed during the whole Game of View Mm storyline. But now it's Daniel, who's wandering out of his crib directly into the Dreaming and playing with a gargoyle who he refers to as Doggy. Yeah, sounds right. Sounds right for a child that was born in the Dreaming and right. made in the Dreaming. And then he runs into Matthew, Matthew. who he refers to as Bertie. And the baby's wandering around and runs into Eve. It says, Eve, uh, Matthew says, Eve, what are you doing away from the cave? She says, is there any rule that I always have to dwell in nightmares? I don't know, you always have. So they wander to the House of Secrets, where Abel is. Because that's totally safe for a child. Absolutely. So they decide to sit around and have tea. Matthew eats on a rat that's been decaying for a week or two, which he says gives it extra flavor. That's sanitary. Well, he makes a comment. He says, it's the weird thing. When you become a raven, you really are a raven. I thought I was going to be like human me in a raven body. He's like, nope, doesn't work like that. I really think like a raven. And their eyeballs are delicious. Meaning the rat eyeballs. Honestly, fair. Yeah. So, Eve is hanging out, and there's some commentary about, you know, well, what do you know it, it is to be a mother? And she's like, well, I was the mother of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> Which, actually, if you consider the lore, if the lore is an accurate metaphor for this, then Abel is her son. Yeah. And so is Cain. And we get into this weird thing here. We return to this theme of unreliable narrators with you have to trust the story, not the storyteller. Because Cain shows up and they decide to all tell stories Mm -hmm. to entertain Daniel. 
And Kane tells a story about rooks, crows. Oh, the hound's got somebody again. And he tells a story that's actually a true story, that sometimes they are known to gather in, say, an empty field in a giant circle, and it's called a parliament of rooks when they do this. It's just like they're having a trot. Mm-hmm. And somebody sits in the center, uh, a crow, who makes various noises, and then at the end, they either fly off or they peck it to death. Yeah, it, it's. It, I was very terrified when I learned this for the first time. Yeah. And Matthew wants to know why. And Kane, who is, of course, the head of the uh, House of Mysteries, is like, oh, it's a mystery, isn't it? So then it becomes Eve's turn, and she kind of has to be bullied into telling a story. So Eve tells a story about how Adam had three wives. So then Eve tells the story, and she tells the story of the three wives of Adam. Lilith, who was the first and then left, and then a second one that was created from nothing and Adam saw it, and he was so freaked out that she left Eden by herself. And then the third one formed out of Adam's own body, which was Eve. She relates the story in many ways as it's told from the Christian book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Although I'm not aware, I, I am aware of some old traditions from uh, uh, Abrahamic sources that refer to Lilith. I'm not aware of any that refer to a second wife in between Lilith and Eve. But yeah. maybe there are in some Dead Sea Scrolls or some old Gnostic traditions or there's, something. I don't know. There's been so many books. Uh, well, in oral traditions, oh. pre-books, scrolls, clay tablets, you know. Who knows? Uh, or, or Gaiman may have just invented it for this story. I don't know. But again, we have this idea of here we're being told a story that's totally different from the stories we've been told before. And, of course, we're reminded, and the characters discuss this in the story, that they aren't really talking about literal truths. These are metaphors. And indeed, Abel goes through and tells a story of Cain and Abel in this sort of super deformed art style where we get to see them and dream and death as these cute little figures. Chibi art. Chibi art, yes. And as they're talking about all this, and Cain is offended by the tone of the story, because Abel likes to interject cutesy, pleasant things into it. Cain mm -hmm. is bothered by this. Because Cain's bothered by everything. And Cain's a jerk. Mm -hmm. And Abel starts to say at one point... Uh, well, I'll back up a little. Matthew says, look, can I ask a dumb question? All this biblical stuff, I mean, how true is it? Are you guys the real Cain and Abel? Are you the real Eve? I mean, how does it all work with cavemen and dinosaurs and all that shit? <laughs> and Abel starts to say, oh, this wasn't on Earth. And Cain cuts him off. Shut up! What's the point of having secrets and mysteries if you're going to blab them? But the point is, clearly that these are metaphors. These are the ways we un would understand the story. Mm -hmm. But these things happened long ago in ancient history, and maybe there weren't even sentient life forms that had done these things yet. Maybe they are f in dreams now because these were the dreams of the first murder. I don't know. We don't know. Mm -hmm. 
It's all very vague and mysterious. And of course it ends with Eve leaving with Daniel, Cain murdering Abel again, and by the time Hippolyta goes to check on Daniel, he's back in his crib with a raven feather. Congratulations, you just got free babysitting. Yep, and from there we will go next time into brief lives. But what did you think of that? The idea of trust the story, not the storyteller, and three stories with unreliable narrators. Interesting. It's an interesting mechanic, and I really feel like at this point, game and storytelling chops were coming together. Now, the next storyline we talk about is essentially the pivoting point. Mm -hmm. After Brief Lives, the run towards the end goes into high gear. Mm -hmm. By the end of Brief Lives, Ramadan is right after that, and that's 50 issues, and Sandman ran 75. Mm -hmm. So it's two-thirds of the way through, and after Brief Lives, the rest of it is all working directly to the resolution of the series. And we'll have quite a bit to talk about, including, I, I'll be honest, when we talk about Brief Lives, a lot of people seem to think that the themes of Brief Lives are really cryptic, and I don't think they are. I think they're, in fact, very simple and obvious. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about that then. So, class is no longer in session.